We started a political party, but we have one huge problem. We haven't got a clue what to put in our manifesto. So now we're on a journey exploring ideas from parties on the fringes of British politics to create a manifesto that just might work. After a trip up north last episode for a very Scottish by-election, we're back to our normal format, diving into several parties in more detail and potentially borrowing some of their ideas. I'm Sam Jackson, and I'm joined by my fellow political sleuths. I'm Quinn Strachan. I'm William Mitchell. And I'm Graham Wilson. And in this episode, we're talking about devolution. Coming up, we investigate if the Cornish Liberation Army would declare war on the English Democrats if they got into power, how the sixth biggest party in the UK is one you've probably never heard of, and finally, we debate Cornish pasties, Yorkshire puddings, and if littering can be a form of terrorism. But before we dive into three parties in more detail, what other fun policy ideas or parties did you come across in your research? We've got the, the Northern Independence Party, which is trying to sort of uh, capture the whole of the North, including York and the Humber. And some of their policies included uh, nationalising Greggs and banning Dominic Cummings from Barnard Castle. I think he's probably not going to set foot back there again. He probably is. He's, he's had enough of his visits already, hasn't he? Yeah, once you've was got, enough. You've got the uh, Norfolk Independence Party, um, which is not really anything much more than a Facebook page at the moment <laughs> with a handful of <laughs> very passionate uh, <laughs> contributors. Uh, there's also Mech Vadden, uh, who wants uh, the other man to declare independence from the UK and become a republic. And I stumbled across the Orkney and Shetland movement, who uh, could potentially break away from Scotland and take a large amount of the uh, oil and uh, natural gas reserves as well. Smart. With Smart. them, which is a good... I mean, if you, yeah, to be an independent nation, it's good to have massive, uh, you know, mineral and natural yeah. resource wealth. This is true. There's all, I mean, there's also one more I wanted to highlight. is the Wessex Regionless Party, which is essentially trying to capture the whole southwest of England, but not Cornwall. Just okay. the, whole, the whole rest of it. Okay, so already we've got some really interesting ideas on devolution and independence to consider, but let's see what else we can find as we dive into some parties in a bit more detail. Will, over to you. And to kick us off, we'll start in Yorkshire. So if we think back to the 2017 May general election, something quite amazing happened in Yorkshire, where the Yorkshire party became the sixth biggest party in the UK, which is quite amazing. Uh, We thought that was quite an interesting stat for for a small party to to be doing quite well in politics given they had just been founded in 2014 uh, and as we were looking at the Yorkshire party we came across lots of other independence movement parties and and devolution and, and we thought that might be an interesting place to to explore I guess the logical place to start with though is what is devolution essentially well, perhaps I, I could chime in here with a little potted history of devolution. So a devolution is the process of central government passing on powers to regional bodies or assemblies so they can um, decide matters locally. Um, so we've seen a few examples of this. There's been the, the Welsh Senate, the Scottish Parliament, the London Assembly in 2000. Uh, we won't touch upon the devolved nations for now because that's a different kettle of fish. But uh, in 2004... The Northeast, Newcastle, there's a proposal that they should have their own assembly. This was campaigned against by Dominic Cummings, the famous Dominic Cummings, who um, quashed John Prescott's plans. And then things kind of died a bit of a death until a few years ago in 2019, with Boris Johnson coming in. He proposed mass devolution for the country, and we saw that in the levelling up white paper. So, so far, we've got um, there's three kinds of devolution deal. There's level one, two, and three. Level one is very, very basic. It's just local authorities working together, perhaps through a joint committee. There's not much extra funding, not much extra power. Level two, 
you might get a slightly more integrated committee, so your different local authorities working together. And level three is the big one, where you get a mayor and lots and lots of funding. So far, there's only been level three deals. Famously seen in Manchester um, with Andy Burnham, Liverpool with Steve Rotherham, the West Midlands, Bristol, although they just got rid of their mayor, and most recently, York and North Yorkshire. Yeah, so Sheffield, uh, when did they get their mayorship? Was that 2019? Right about then, yeah. So Oliver Coppard came in for South Yorkshire. Yeah, uh, and then recently there's been a devolution deal which was signed in February, I think, of this year, of 2023, where they've been given a level three devolution deal uh, to get their own mayor. Um, so this is something that the Yorkshire Party have been calling for for a long time, except they've called for something that goes a bit further. They want an assembly. They want Yorkshire to be almost recognised as a separate, almost evolved state. While they welcome a mayorship, they, they want it to go further. And can I, can I give you some reasons of why? So maybe I can give you some facts about Yorkshire. So they have a population of 5.4 million people. So that's more than Scotland, it's more than Wales, it's more than Ireland. It's, it's more than you'd think, isn't it? It's, it's more than you think, mm. yeah. Their, their economy is pretty good. So they have £110 billion a year is how much they, they generate. And depending on who you ask, that accounts for about 7 to 8% of UK GDP. It's huge, yeah. And it's more than 11 other European countries. This is, this is why they make the argument, and, and they're also the, the biggest county in, in England, which I think is a bit contentious. Well, it's a historic county, because it's split into different ridings. You've got South, West, and now North and North Yorkshire. Previously, York was separate. Yeah. There's also the Humber. That's a bit of a different kettle of fish. So a lot of regional differences within the region of Yorkshire. And they have three of the biggest cities, so Leeds, Sheffield, and Bradford. So given there's a lot of money to play for and they are a big economic block in their own right, it seems like a potentially, you know, certainly you can see why they'd be uh, open to it. You can see why it might be viable for them. It's got a lot going for it. Um, but I guess some more sort of the, the downside is that it has some of the highest inequality rates in the UK, very high above average poverty rate. Uh, and that seems to be getting worse. They have some of the worst performing schools in the UK as well. So the Yorkshire Party thinks, well, if we have devolution, we can have more targeted interventions. You know, we can have control of our education, we can have control of our transport and uh, and the economy and, and take advantage of that. So that's, that's, that's the reason why they're calling. When, when talking about devolution, is there a, a size limit, big or small, that a region can be to be devolved? Or uh, is that not defined? So, so there's not. So this is, uh, again, a cause of quite some contention. As we see, devolution is quite a contentious topic. Um, we're seeing this in the north of Tyne area at the moment. So that previously was about five or six local authorities grouped together under a mayor. But now they're having another uh, argument on whether or not uh, fresh authorities should be added in, like Northumberland or County Durham and how they fit into this. So really, it can be uh, as big as you want. And the government definition is a sensible geographic area. <laughs> Which is open to interpretation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I've got some facts about Yorkshire in general. Okay. I can, I can yeah. throw in just some good ones. Obviously, home to the, the Bronte sisters, for you literary fans. Has the oldest still-running football club in the world, in Sheffield FC. And it has the first ever commercial fish and chip shop in the world as well, called The Malin, which was opened in Leeds in 1863. There you go. It's also where uh, Sir Alexander William George Casey 
published the first recipe for the Yorkshire pudding. Oh, tasty. Yeah, yeah. Although he did publish it in a book called The Whole Duty of a Woman, which was was an instruction manual for women written by a man. So Good. We don't condone that sort of thing. No, about 1737. I've got a good one, which I don't want to, you know, you'll... People listening will notice there are some Scottish voices on this podcast, uh, and I don't want to be controversial, but Yorkshire do claim to have invented ferret legging, although the origin of that is, is disputed. Does anyone know what ferret legging is? We have, I, Will and I have a wee idea. We, we, we know a man in Edinburgh in pubs who likes to carry a ferret down his trousers that he'll show you. Is that ferret legging? Is that a euphemism? No, it's an actual <laughs> ferret. <laughs> so it's not a kind of podcast, not a... <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the sport was uh, popular among coal miners uh, in Yorkshire and England in the 1970s, though some Scots claim it was uh, invented in, in Scotland. We, we've got another good competition they run as well called welly wanging. Wanging? Wanging? I think it's wanging. Wanging, that's it. Um, which is a quirky sport, as it's described here, throwing a welly boot uh, as far as you can. There you go. So all this rich cultural <laughs> traditions, <laughs> if an argument in itself for Yorkshire devolution. Maybe just go back to the Yorkshire party. Uh, maybe we can look at some of the characters that are involved. At the moment, it's Scott. It's run by two leaders. One of them is Simon Biltcliffe, and he he actually ran for the mayorship of Sheffield. Did did quite well. Got several thousand votes. He went on a platform of, of course, Yorkshire devolution and and that. But he also pledged to donate his salary. So I think it's about seventy over seventy thousand pounds a year. It would have been. He wanted to donate it all to the Samaritans. He describes himself as a Marxist capitalist, very successful businessman who set up a marketing firm which turns over about £20 million a year and employs only 40 people. And he reinvests a lot of that money into his uh, employees and and community and and donates a lot of money to charity. So he grew up in Yorkshire during sort of after the mining closed. He remembers some really difficult times and struggled with poverty. He left Yorkshire, became quite a successful businessman, and then returned. And it was sort of that poverty and the inequality that really started to get to him. And that's why he joined politics. The other co-chair is a guy called Bob Buxton. And he's equally quite interesting as well, with a career that spans elements of being an engineering teacher, primary school governor, fantasy author. Not the manifesto, I hope. We hope for their sake, not their manifesto. (laughs) And he also puts himself down as an amateur filmmaker and a palindromic poet. It's quite, a, I guess it's quite a, a restricted form of poetry, but interesting in itself. Palindrome being a word that you can spell backwards and forwards. Yeah, the same. It's, so it's Bob, the same. Is a Bob is a palindrome. But anyone got any other palindromes they could list? Madam. Oh. Ooh. Very good. That's all I've got. <laughs> uh, as, as, as. I really think it would, I would struggle to write poetry based just those. Race car. Is that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Very good. Bob, uh, Madam, race car. Well, moving swiftly on. <laughs> this is obviously an audio format, but I could see Sam's cogs whirring right there. Trying to oh, I was really that. struggling with that one. <laughs> how, how are they getting on? It'd be interesting to sort of see where they are in terms of meeting their objectives and aims. Well, they're doing well and they've grown. So since being founded in 2014, they've continued to attract more membership. They remain. So since 2017, they've remained the sixth biggest party in the UK. So you said that, but I'd be interested to know, is that on members or votes? On votes. So it's on their record. Um, and, you know, in, in a lot of local council elections, they've come ahead of the Green Party. They've done better than the Lib Dems. And they've got several parish councillors. They're not in Parliament, obviously, just yet. But it's interesting that Yorkshire, having got this devolution deal recently, there'll be an election next year. 
Yes, and that mayoral election for York and North Yorkshire is happening in May next year, and I'm sure we'll be covering some of the candidates and their policies nearer the time. But now we're going to move from one party to another, and we're going to head down south, where the people of Cornwall have a slightly different approach to campaigning for devolution. So while we've seen um, some appetite for devolution in the north, there's trouble brewing in the southwest of England. So uh, the west of England has its own mayor, Marvin Rees, Labour mayor, uh, but the public there have just voted to scrap the, um, the mayoral authority, so they'll be going. Uh, and in Cornwall, there was a recent consultation on whether they should get a level three mayoral deal. However, the public have rejected it, which is quite an interesting scenario. So it'd be good to dive a bit more into what's going on there in Cornwall. And Cornwall's a bit different, isn't it, from a lot of other parts of the UK, where it does have its own unique identity, and it's got a lot of uh, very ancient language. In fact, in 2014, the government officially recognised Cornish people as a, as a minority group, so it gave them the same status as those, you know, the Scots, the Irish and the Welsh. Cornish language is taught in schools, um, and there's been a big research in putting it up on signs across Cornwall as well. And in a recent poll, 10% of people in Cornwall identified as Cornish as opposed to English or, or British. I don't have the, the, the specifics on me. I wonder how many people in Cornwall actually speak Cornish, though. I mean, I know it's a language similar to Welsh and Breton, isn't it? It's a Celtic language in that regard. Yeah, so I guess you say 10%, but for context, that's of just over half a million people. So 50,000 people define themselves as, as what is a clearly defined, uh, you know, cultural identity. I and mean, if we look back historically... You know, um, there's been recognition of, of, of Cornwall documented as far back as 936. Yeah. You know, in 1616, there was writing saying that England was was three separate provinces, each speaking English, Welsh and Cornish. And so it's it's got a rich, rich history of, the, of this culture. It does. It's also got a history of rebellion and a history of being very hard to administer uh, and, and govern. Um, the Tudors really struggled. Uh, the Romans basically gave up. And, and interestingly, in 1201... King John established a parliament. So in, in Cornwall, the Cornish Stannery Parliament. What is a stannery? A, a stannery is a region or area that mines tin. Yeah, so, so they were very, very known, famous for making tin. Um, and this parliament, so it wasn't really you know, a Cornish assembly or anything that we might think. And some people in the independence movement like to think that it was. It wasn't. It was for the stannery industry. But they had a lot of influence and, and they actually had the powers to veto any new laws coming from Parliament uh, that related to stannery and the stannery industry. So, yeah, they had they and, and officially their legislative powers have never actually been taken away. Yeah. So, well, I think the the original stannery Parliament sort of dissolved or disappeared uh, in 1974, a pressure group formed as the revived Cornish stannery Parliament. And uh, in 2000, they sent an invoice uh, to the Duchy of Cornwall demanding a refund of, a, of what they calculated as £20 billion worth of overcharged taxation on tin production from 13... Yeah, exactly, <laughs> worth a try. From 1337 to 1837. And they calculated they were being charged at twice the rate levied at, at the uh, adjoining county, um, adjacent county, Devon. And how successful were they? In I this? don't think they've heard back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Streets are paved in gold. St in Cornwall, <laughs> Still <yeah>. outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They should chase that up. On a completely other side, Cornwall has also had some extremist movements and uh, yeah, a sort of terrorist-related activity. Um, so you've got Anne Gough, 
which uh, translates in Cornish as the Smith. And during the 1980s, they they bombed um, a courthouse. Um, they also set fire to a hairdresser's, which they <laughs> not on purpose. They just did. Uh, one, uh, one of their less big attacks. Yeah, one of their less big. Where they actually mistook it for a, a building um, society, which was their intention. Uh, and then throughout the later in the 80s. There was a lot of random fires, uh, a lot of buildings, and famously they put glass on a beach, which they said was to stop tourists. But a lot of people look at them, and given that it's probably only a handful of members with no resources, probably claiming a lot of attacks. So You could also wonder about the uh, uh, trying to sabotage one of your biggest industries. I know that tourism is particularly big in Cornwall. But, but that, as a, as a terrorist attack, is essentially littering. So I don't think that's going to be hugely effective. <laughs> well, well, the story doesn't stop there of Cornish terrorism. So it's Anne Goff have mutated. So a few years ago, the Western Morning News reported that a new and sinister name in regional extremism has appeared. The Cornish National Liberation Army, which is a merging of the Cornish Liberation Army and Anne Goff. Their most high-profile attacks so far have involved threatening celebrity chefs based in Cornwall. So they threatened to burn down Rick, uh, Rick Stein's restaurant in Padstow. Also threatened Jamie Oliver's customers' cars, so they might attack them. But so far, their main contribution seems to be painting burned second homes on the walls of uh, holiday lets in Cornwall. Uh, and not particularly serious threat, well, I have to say. I, they, they also made a threat very recently, which was to you know, destroy all English flags in Cornwall. So back to your point, Graham, you say they've painted the words burn second homes, but they haven't actually burnt any. No, they don't actually burn them, they just okay. threaten to. Very threatening letters. Yes. You said the name Anne Goff was the Smiths, and that's taken from uh, Michael Anne Goff, the leader of the Cornish Rebellion in 1497. There we go. And they've got a history of uh, fighting back against their, their government. Lots of rebellions, absolutely. You mentioned the um, Cornish Liberation Army, Graham. But actually, in popular culture, I was surprised to learn this, and I've seen this film and I didn't pick up on it, but in 2015, the Bad Education movie, based on the TV show, Alfie Vickers, so Jack Whitehall's character, the teacher, his class go to, on a school trip to Cornwall, but accidentally get involved with the Cornish Liberation Army fighting for Cornish independence. Now, we should move to the more serious side of the Cornish independence movement. It's not just the Cornish Liberation Army campaigning for this. There are legitimate political forces with a lot of support, the most significant of which is a party called Mebion Curnow. Mebion Curnow, yeah. I had to look up how to, how to pronounce this one as well. Mebion Curnow is, uh, means Sons of Cornwall in Cornish. And it's a political party founded in 1951, primarily focused on Cornish nationalism and the promotion of the Cornish language, culture and identity. They aim to achieve greater self-governance and decision-making powers for Cornwall within a federal UK or through the establishment of a Cornish Assembly with legislative authority. So very similar to the Yorkshire Party in calling for um, an Assembly. Absolutely. I just wanted to say back to my point about legitimate um, politics. You know, the Mebion Kerno have described these uh, the Liberation, Cornish Liberation Army as a pseudo-terrorist group. I want to make it absolutely clear they are very differentiated. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they we're... see them as a, as a bit of a joke. There's certainly um, no alignment. No. Whereas they are certainly not a joke. Yeah, and... we're not putting them together. Uh, Dick Cole, who's the leader, he's the current leader, he became the leader of the party in 1997. He's actually one of the longest-serving political leaders in, in the UK. Of course, the longest-serving is Howling Lord Hope from the monster-raving Looney Party, who I'm sure we'll explore in, in a future episode. But yeah, resoundingly popular politician. Uh, well, but he's not the most famous dick in British politics. <laughs> oh, right. uh, it's, it's a bold name, isn't it? To go, to go into politics with the name. Yeah. Well, well there, there, there's the short-lived former UKIP leader, Dick Brain. 
Richard Brain, who lasted less than three months until there was a coup within the party because this Dick Brain business, as he said himself, was getting out of hand and constituted bullying and was lowering their reputation amongst their voters. Well, there we go. Well, Dick Cole <laughs> not let his name stand in the way and is is very popular. Every time he's stood as a councillor, and he is a current councillor, he, he's got well over 70% of the vote, which I think over in 20 years to still be polling that high is quite impressive. He, he actually made the headlines in 2001 when he and, and fellow other party members marched to 10 Downing Street and they had boxes stacked full of people who had signed a petition. So 50,000 people had signed this petition for Cornwall to be devolved and to get its own assembly. And how are they getting on with that? That was 2001, you said? So it was 2001, that's when they demanded it. Obviously, since then, as, as Graham's already mentioned, we'd ha- we've had a lot of this levelling up and devolution. And yeah, recently they rejected, didn't they, the um, chance to have a mayorship. Uh, but I think there were, there were some genuine good reasons for that. Well, I think part of the concern, looking at the consultation responses, was they didn't want, they didn't trust local councillors to begin with, didn't think they should get more money, they thought they'd just waste it. Mm. And a sort of slight scepticism of having a celebrity mayor in the style of Andy Burnham who would just dominate the political debate and be sort of um, quite autocratic, I think was their main, main concern there. It's quite interesting seeing, seeing uh, a place rejected, isn't it? Because I guess, well, we're talking about devolution as a whole here, and it, you always sort of get the general idea from people promoting these facts that the representation at the more local level, the better, sort of as a blanket thought. But yeah, but I guess like having a mayor is very different into having uh, an assembly, necessarily, yeah. whereas the assembly could have more power and they could have more of a say and have debates and not just have one mayor who makes all the decisions and is perhaps less accountable, uh, is how they might put it. True. Right, so we've covered Yorkshire, we've covered Cornish independence. Now we're going to close with arguably one of the most high-profile parties campaigning for devolution in the UK, and they are the English Democrats. I've taken this from their website as sort of a bit of an explainer as as to what they think about. They state that we campaign for a referendum for independence for England, for St George's Day to be England's national holiday, for Jerusalem to be England's national anthem, to leave properly and fully the EU, for the cross of St George to be flown on all public buildings in England, and we support a yes vote for Scottish independence. The English Democrats are England's answer to the SNP and to Plaid Cymru. Building that, I'd offer a word of warning to the English Democrats with their plans to fly St George's Cross on every building in England as they might attract the ire of the Cornish National Liberation <laughs> Army. Uh, of course. <laughs> their pledge to burn all English flags in Cornwall. <laughs> but um, a couple of other policies. Uh, they have a real bugbear about Monmouthshire. Uh, currently in Wales, uh, the English Democrats don't think you should be in Wales. They want to, the first things they'll do will be having a referendum for the people of the Monmouthshire, whether they should rejoin England. In uh, 2014, they promised to start a revolution in England. They had launched the manifesto at, um, in the village of Fobbing in Essex, which is the site of the start of the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, with leader Robin Tilbrook declaring, let the English revolt begin. Yeah, so there's a militant bunch. <laughs> uh, but the most high-profile success uh, was in Doncaster in 2009. So Peter Davis was the mayor there. A man who has, has a reach in the corridors of power. His son, Philip Davis, is the Tory MP for Shipley, married to former member of the cabinet, Esther McVeigh. So he's got some quite high-profile family members. He wasn't expecting to win. When asked if he thought he'd win, he said, uh, not really. Uh, (laughs) Confident. An honest politician. (laughs) He came in on quite a a hard-line manifesto, and the Yorkshire Post has won a court case against uh, the party for describing them as far-right. He promised to bring in uh, tough punishment for uh, what he described as young thugs. 
very upset about diversity. I wanted to slash diversity officers and diversity funding in Doncaster. Mm. Also, he hadn't checked if he could do the things he promised to his manifesto. So there's a car crash interview on BBC Radio Sheffield, where it turned out he didn't actually know if he had the legal power to deliver any of the things he promised. So um, his, his reign in Doncaster uh, didn't end too well. He resigned in 2013 after it turned out that the BNP had infiltrated the English Democrats. The British National Party. Yes, and about 10% of their members is estimated were to be um, actually BNP people. And uh, Robin Tilbrook, the leader, wasn't too fussed about this. He said, you know, that they can, they can make up their mind as to what they want. Uh, so that gives you a bit of a window onto the kind of thinking we have in the, the English Democrats. Yeah, and I think the, the economic arguments that they've, they've put forward, I haven't checked these figures, I'm not an economist, but this is what they put forward. So they've said that uh, under the Barnett formula and devolution, 60 to £70 billion pounds per year of English money goes to Scotland and Wales, which is, for context, if these numbers are right, it's four times what we were giving to the EU prior to Brexit, and it's one third of the annual NHS budget. Sounds especially like they've, they've times 350 by... 52 to get to that quarter <laughs> quarter of the, the Scotland and Wales yeah, budget. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. But they, Robin Tilbrook, who's the, the leader, the chairman, I can't the remember. The leader, yes. The leader, he says that um, basically England, they give the money out and they get the bill and the blame, is how he sort of flippantly describes that financial arrangement. So there's, there's a lot of uh, resentment in terms of where the money's going, which is, uh, underpins a lot of their policies and ideas. In my research for the English Democrats, I thought I'd run some things past ChatGPT just to see what angle it had about them. And uh, it gave me one sort of one, one fact, which I thought I'd share with you guys. It's talking about the party logo. It says the English Democrats party logo features a white dragon, which is a symbol associated with English heritage and mythology. It could lead to some amusing debates about whether the party is secretly advocating for the return of dragons to England. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to be controversial, but I do not endorse a rewilding project that involves bringing dragons back to the Wolves UK. are one thing, dragons are something else. Yeah, it's quite, quite extreme. <laughs> have, have they now pretty much disappeared then? So they had the high-profile position, but is it now... They've not got any councillors, for example, or anything. No, they haven't got any councillors, but they do get quite a bit of media attention. I wonder if this is partly due to the fact that, you know, Philip Davis and Esther McVeigh have GB News shows, but Robin Tilbrook mm. appears quite regularly on GB News. He's also recently involved as a solicitor for a high-profile grooming case in the north of England. So he's got quite a bit of traction out of that, but right. he's the main one that gets on the news. I mean, to, to use that term, political establishment, it feels like, versus some of the other parties we've researched on the left wing who are sort of younger upstarts, he maybe has a bit more influence and connections with that political establishment, which helps to raise your profile and launch a party. OK, so that's all from the English Democrats for now. But as is the case for all these parties, we're only really scratching the surface. And I'm sure we'll revisit all of them in future episodes when we focus on different policy areas. And we'll, of course, be looking to interview some of their representatives to get to know them even better. Now we come to the part of the podcast where we need to agree on some policies for the manifesto. But before we do, Crinin, you had a pretty important topic you wanted to discuss, right? Oh, yeah. I think the question that we've been circling and has been on all of our minds so far is, you know, the Cornish pasty versus the Yorkshire pudding. Which is better? Will? I mean, there was like a, a national poll conducted a few years ago, and I remember it was about you know the best food in the in the UK, and the Yorkshire pudding did win, and I, I would agree with that. I think, in practical terms, it's got to be the pasty. Uh, it's, it's full of nutrition. <laughs> it's designed to keep a working person mining away uh, all day. So yeah, that it's the pasty for me. Well, I mean, I'm if I'm the casting vote, if it's your, yeah. your person has put the motion to the floor, yes. I'm unfortunately gluten intolerant, so I can't have either. <laughs> so I I abstain. So there's no conclusion there. So it, it, it's a draw for that one. But, but to take it back to, to a serious point, we were discussing offline. Essentially, 
what is the point of all of this and devolution as a whole? And is there really a chance that anything will actually happen? Or are all these parties just essentially glorified protest groups? I, I think I think some of them are definitely protest groups, whereas some of them are actually yeah, political forces to be reckoned with. I feel like the Yorkshire Party has quite a bright future. It's come quite far since 2014 when it was founded. There's a mayorship election next year. They'll definitely compete in that, and they might win it. I think as devolution does continue and you have uh, more of these regional assemblies and mayors coming in, it does give these smaller parties more room to, to get into power. We've seen this in Cornwall uh, with Mervyn Canoe, if I can say that properly. Uh, they've got councillors there, so they got promoted to being an assembly. You would suddenly start seeing you know, more representation of parties like this. Yeah, I, mean, I think from my side, the thing that was striking when I was researching this is that's that culture and language piece, which is obviously got many, many years of, of heritage, and that's something people are very, very passionate about holding on to. And sometimes that in itself, that feeling and that, that sentiment far outweighs economic benefits or other factors. So I think recognising those in, in any way, be it devolution or otherwise, is, is very, very critical. It is. And, and I suppose they, they shouldn't be judged on accomplishing 100% of their aims because it is so difficult to do that within our system. So maybe, you know, even if they have a slight impact in, in whatever way it is and have a positive change, able to change their area positively, that can be only seen as a success. I think we've seen in uh, the devolved nations that devolving power doesn't necessarily mean better public services, but it means you have a more expensive system and almost over-governance. I mean, Scotland's one of the most governed countries in the world. And has that already done that much for the people of Scotland? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Highly debatable, isn't it? Um, I, I think there's, there's an argument for it. I feel like targeted interventions kind of make sense. If you know what the problems are in your schools or with your transport or infrastructure, then you can develop those solutions. I think it's a positive thing due to the fact that it's, it's important to ensure that people feel heard and represented. And I think it's, it's a very good way of ensuring that people down to a local level do feel that their issues are being heard and addressed. I mean, Westminster only has limited amount of time. It only has so many hours in the day. So local issues being dealt with by local people in their areas with more expertise seems like a good thing to me. Says so yes. Okay, so we decided on devolution. It's a great idea. Let's stick it in the manifesto. And that marks the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for our next episode, and we hope to see you then. Now, our usual listeners will know we like to finish on a topical musical number. Did anyone find anything good to play us out? Well, it just so happens that I I do. The English Democrats have their very own band. It's a man called Citizen Steve, and here's their 2014 smash hit. As is a nation, it's one nation of old. A land built by heroes, their stories we've been told. Built upon a history of toil, sweat and tears. A Christian land of over a thousand years. But listen to me people, these words you can't ignore. Today England needs her sons and her daughters like never before. Feel the pride, hear the call From land's end to Adrian's wall This is England, the land of St George This is the land of the free Where the white cliffs meet the sea A thousand years of kings and queens Oxford and Cambridge, English law Charles Dickens and Bobby Moore 
Strike and Nelson sail in the seven seas.